As Greg said, if you would turn with me to John 13, we're going to be in verses 31 through 35 this morning, and while you're turning there, maybe you're familiar with that song from the 60s. Don't worry, I'm not going to sing it to you, but you probably recognize the lyrics, that song that says, what the world needs now is love, sweet love, it's the only thing that there's just too little of. What the world needs now is love, sweet love. No, not just for some, but for everyone. And around the time that Jackie DeShannon was singing that and touring with the Beatles, the Beatles were singing, all you need is love. Love is all you need. And then the sexual revolution of the 70s, and everyone lived happily ever after. And all our problems were solved. Or not. You know, when I think about those lyrics, I think it, it just seems like the most obvious thing in the world to everyone that we could all use more love. And does anybody actually disagree with that? Would more love be a, be a bad thing in the world? But if everyone thinks that, everyone agrees with that, everyone knows that it's a good thing to have more love, then why is the world such a mess still? I mean, evidently, something more must be needed than knowing that we ought to love. And that's what Jesus gets at in our text this morning. You know you ought to love. You know that you ought to love more. But something more is needed than just knowing that. Because knowing that doesn't make you more loving. I mean, you've probably experienced this just in, within your household, right? The very people you're closest to, you say you care about the most... Husband, wife, children, parents, can be the people that you hurt the most. And you just think, why do I keep hurting them? I don't want to do that. I want to love them. So something more is needed. 2,000 years ago, the Son of God incarnated, took on flesh to reveal the glorious love of God in order to fill the world with more love, specifically with people who love one another the way that he loved us, the very same love of God that he revealed in flesh and blood. So follow along with me in John 13, beginning in verse 31. This is God's word, and it revives our souls, and it gives life to us. When he, that's Judas, had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified. And God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me. And just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Let's pray. Father, you speak through your word, but you don't just communicate ideas and information in an abstract way. 
your speech gets things done. It, it makes things happen. You, you speak and it comes to be. You command, let there be light and there is light. And you speak into the darkness of our hearts through the word of the cross. And you cause the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ to shine into our hearts. And so that's what we're praying for now that your light, your glorious light in Jesus would shine and accomplish something, produce in us love, as Greg prayed and shared already, that, that we would experience your love, not just know more about it, but experience it and be so changed and so transformed by it that we would actually go from here living lives of love in practical ways. God, do this for your namesake and do this for our joy and do this for the good of our city, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So the main point of this text is really simple. It, in the words of D.A. Carson, it's simple enough that a, a toddler could memorize it and appreciate it. it. It's profound enough still that even the most mature believers are repeatedly embarrassed at how poorly they comprehend it and put it into practice. The main point's in verse 34, love one another. We know that's the main point because it's the command, and it's the command that Jesus repeats twice in verse 34. You also are to love one another. And then again in verse 35, if you have love for one another. So three times he repeats this central idea, love one another. Now that, that's not, in, in all likelihood, a new thought to you, a new command to you. Even if you have little to no church background, the idea that you ought to be loving is not new. The Beatles and Jackie DeShannon knew that. They sang about it. They preached it, right? And if you do have a church background, then this is definitely not a new idea to you. In fact, it wasn't even a new idea or a new command to the Jewish disciples sitting in that room with Jesus. They would have been familiar with Leviticus 19.18, which says, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So they knew this. It was familiar to them. And yet, you catch what Jesus said to his disciples then and what he's saying to you today? A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. So why does he call it new if it's not new? What's new about it? Jesus says that it's new, so there must be something new about what he's saying. And, and this is crucial. In fact, if you don't grasp this, that is in what sense it's new, then, then you will fail to understand the meaning of this command and the significance of it for your life. We'll just overlook it, pass over it. It'll go in one ear and out the other or something. I've heard that before, familiar with that. I know that already. But it, it all hinges on this. In what sense is it new? And the word new can mean like recent, brand new, wasn't around before. But it can also be used in a comparison between two things. This is new as compared to that which is old and being replaced. And, and that's how the word new is used throughout what we call the New Testament. 2 Corinthians 5.17, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, the new has come. Or in Ephesians 2.15, by his death... Jesus destroys racial hostility between Jews and Gentiles, and he creates in himself one new man out of the two. 
Or in Hebrews 9.15, Jesus is the mediator of a new covenant ratified by his blood. Revelation 5.9, saints and angels sing a new song to Jesus, the lamb who was slain. Or in Revelation 21, John sees the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, a bride beautifully adorned for her husband, Jesus. Revelation 21.5, in Jesus, God is making all things new. You catch how throughout the entire New Testament, everything new is connected to what? Jesus, the life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus. Jesus is the the pivot point. He's the transforming agent. He's the watershed. The watershed is like that point where water trickles one way or the other at that point. He is the dividing line. At Jesus, everything flows a new direction. In Jesus, all the old shadows, the old figures, the types are fulfilled, and all of the promises come true. And in Jesus, the blind see, and the deaf hear, and the broken are restored, and sinners are forgiven, and the dead are raised. And likewise, this old commandment, to love one another is new. Not because it didn't exist before Jesus, but because it is transformed in and through Jesus. In Jesus, everything changes. So look again at verse 34. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. The fact that you must love is not new. What's new is the way that you're called to love. Just as I have loved you. In the same manner that I loved you. The way I loved you, that's the way that you are called to love. And so, in order to understand this new and unprecedented way that you are to love, you have to look to Jesus and the way that he Loved. He repeats the same command with the same emphasis in John 15, 12, and 13. This is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. That's, that's it. As I loved you. So how did Jesus love? That's, that's the question. I want to show you two ways that Jesus loved you so that you might be empowered by the Spirit of God to go and love others in the same way. You with me? So first... First way that Jesus loved is this. Jesus loved by laying down his life. There's a lot of talk of timing here in this paragraph in John 13, 31. When Judas had gone out. So the section we just came from, Jesus foretells he's going to be betrayed. Satan put it into Judas's heart. He goes out and it was night. And when he goes out, something has been put in motion now. The Jews have been trying to arrest Jesus and kill Jesus for a long time. Right? But now something significant is put in motion. Everything is moving toward this climax of his life and his ministry. When Judas had gone out, that is to betray Jesus, Jesus said, now, right now, it's about to happen. Now is the Son of Man glorified. And then he says in verse 32, God will glorify him at once. And so there is an immediacy about this. The hour of his glorification has arrived. And the hour of his glorification, John has been repeating this point throughout his gospel so that we would get it. It's the same as the hour of his death. His glorification and his death are not two separate things. They happen 
simultaneously. He's glorified in death. And so he says to his disciples in verse 33, yet a little while, I am with you. Back in the beginning of this chapter, John 13, 1, his hour had come to depart from the world to return to the Father. So there's a connection here. That's significant. The newness of the command of love is connected to Jesus' exaltation by death, his glorification by death. John, one of the ways he repeats this throughout the gospel is he uses this phrase that has double meaning. He speaks of Jesus being lifted up. And every time he talks about Jesus being lifted up, it means lifted up on the cross and lifted up in glory. And that's what's about to happen. When he's lifted up in agony and humiliation on the cross, that's when he's lifted up in glory and honor. So how does Jesus love? By laying down his life. John 15, 13, Jesus says in a couple chapters, he'll say this to his disciples, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. And that truth, that reality, so gripped John and his life and his ministry, it became the pinnacle, the, the definition of love to John. When he wrote the epistle of 1 John, in 1 John 3.16, listen to what he writes. By this we know love. This is how we know what it is. This is the definition of love that he laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. That's it. The way he loved is he laid down his life for us. And that becomes the shape, the form, the pattern, the, the example of the way that we love one another by laying down our lives for each other. It's like if you open up to the dictionary and you know they have examples of usages. The definition of love, the example given, is not just an abstract idea. It is portrayed ultimately, supremely in Jesus laying down his life for you. That's love and that's the pattern of how God calls you to love others. The, the cross taught John love is not merely a feeling. It's not just warm fuzzies about other people. It is costly action for their good. So John goes on, 1 John 3, 17 and 18. If anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. So love is action, not just talk, not just words, because Jesus didn't love you just by saying that he loved you. He went to the cross and laid down his life for you. To love one another as Jesus loved you means that you lay down your life in practical, everyday ways for others. So that's simple enough to understand, right? But there's, a, there's several problems with that. First, we need more than an example. Right? If somebody came to you and said, hey, you don't know how to dunk a basketball? Just look at LeBron James. I mean, he is the supreme example of how to dunk a basketball. Watch a few videos on YouTube and do what he does. I don't know about you, but that would not help me at all. There are things about me that make it impossible for me to dunk like LeBron no matter how many videos I watch on YouTube. I can't just look at his example and copy that. So looking at Jesus' example of love leaves us thinking, well, that's great, but he's God, right, in the flesh. Easy for him, not so easy for me. So, so that's one problem. Second, he died for our sins. Clearly, you and I are not called to die for anyone else's 
sins. We can't atone for the sins of others. We can't do that. So there's something different about him laying down his life for us. And plus, dying is not necessarily an expression of love. If I'm walking with my wife, we're on a date downtown, which is rare for us. But let's imagine it happened. We're walking downtown, and I just said, Barbara, I love you so much. Watch. I just throw myself out into Phillips Avenue in front of a bus. That does, that's not love, right? So just love is not voluntary martyrdom. Like, let me just find a way to be as miserable as I can and hope somebody notices it's all in love. It's not just voluntary martyrdom. So if Jesus calls you to love in the same way that he loved, and he loved you by laying down his life for you, then then these are kind of important questions. How and in what sense, and is it even possible for us to lay down our lives in love for others? And that brings us to the second part of this. Jesus loved by laying down his life to make much of God. And this is the sense in which you and I can also lay down our lives for others. Look at verses 31 and 32 again. Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. And if God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. There is this immediacy. It's happening now. It's at once. This is the beginning of what we call the farewell discourse. Verse 31 begins the farewell discourse and is going to go on through John 16. Jesus is preparing his disciples for the reality of his departure, his death. I'm not going to be with you anymore. And how is he describing what's about to happen? It's the hour of his death and his departure, but what he's describing is glorification. The Son of Man is glorified and God is glorified in Him. So what was it that motivated Jesus to go to the cross? Absolutely. In one sense, it was love for you. And also, it was passion for the glory of God. A desire to exalt the glory of His Father. That's what motivated Jesus. In fact, those two things are not two different things. It was his passion for the glory of the Father that actually was the the source, the fountain of his love for you. He loved you so much because he loved the glory of the Father so much. He expressed his love for you in such a costly way because he delighted himself fully and supremely in the glory of his Father. And it was by trusting the Father by delighting in the Father, that he was so fully satisfied and secure that he could lay down his life for you. That's how he was able to love. And in doing so, he does what LeBron James can't do. No no amount of private dunking lessons from LeBron can help me. But Jesus, in laying down his life to exalt the glory of the Father, actually sets you and me free from our self-absorbed, self-obsessed sin so that we too can find our greatest delight in the glory of God, which changes us and makes it possible for us to love others in the very same way that Jesus loved us. You see, Glorifying the Father is not only the source of his love, the the security that he had overflowing in love, it's the way that he loved. It's, It's the way that he shows you and me what the most loving thing is that we can do for other people. That is, Jesus loved by making much of God. That's how the Father loved the Son. Look at John 5, 20. 
The Father loves the Son and shows Him all that He Himself is doing. What does it mean for the Father to love the Son? He shows Him. There's a revelation. There's a display. He loves the Son and shows Him everything that He's doing. And likewise, John 14, 23, if anyone loves me, Jesus says, he will keep my word and what will happen? My Father will love him. And what happens when the Father loves you? We, we, Father, Son, and Spirit, we will come to him and make our home with him. John 17, 26, Jesus prays, I made known to them your name. I made known to them your name, Father, and I will continue to make it known so that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. What does it mean for God to love you? For God's love to be in you? It means God makes himself known to you. The most loving thing Jesus could do for his disciples and for you is to make the glory of God known to you. And that's the sense in which he calls you to love others. Lay down your life in order to help them see, not your greatness, but the the greatness of the God who satisfies and secures you. Jesus loved by laying down his life in order to make God known. So when Jesus commands his disciples, when he commands you to love others in that same way, get this, he is inviting you into the very same life of love that he has lived in forever. I don't get it either. I don't fully comprehend that either, which is why Paul can pray like he does in Ephesians, where Greg prayed from today, that somehow we would grasp this love that is beyond comprehension. The new commandment, that you would love others the way Jesus loved you, is possible because Jesus opened up for you through his flesh access into the life of God, which is life of love. Look at the the mutual glorification that's going on between the Father and the Son, again, 31 and 32. Now is the Son of Man glorified. I've filled in the specific pronoun so you track what's going on here. Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in the Son. And if God is glorified in the Son, God will also glorify the Son in himself and glorify him at once. Who's glorifying who here? Both. It's this back and forth mutual glorification, and that's what's been happening for all eternity. The Father has always loved the Son because the Son has always been a perfect display of the fullness of the glory of God and nothing Nothing is more satisfying than that. And that's what the Father sees and delights in. And the Son has always been fully satisfied by the glory of the Father. Oh, and between them is the Holy Spirit perfectly manifesting this love and mutual glorification between the Father and the Son. And as C.S. Lewis says, the, the Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit, is not some static entity like this eternal dance, movement, joy, love, and delight, and all of that joy in the triune God spills over as love. The overflow of that joy, that that overflows, and God says, this joy is so full, let's bring others in, let's create a world and fill it with people and save those people from their sin to bring them into this joy. That's the love of God. 
not because he needed anything, but because he had everything. And it pleased him to bring others into that. That's the love of God for you. And that's the relationship that Jesus brings you into by laying down his life for you. To love like Jesus means you find all your soul satisfaction in God so that being secured, being satisfied in him, you can actually help others find their soul satisfaction in God, even when it costs you, when it costs you time, when it costs you comfort, when it costs you convenience, when it costs you energy or money or sleep or safety, because you have everything you need. And that is so different than the counterfeit idea of love in the world. I mean, it's the exact opposite. Why is it that we have all these songs about how much we need love and we still can't fix the world's problems? Because at the root of our sin is actually love, which is love for the wrong thing. Right? James 4 explains, why is there conflict between you? Not because of lack of love, because of too much love for the wrong things. You love something so bad and you don't have it, so what do you do? Well, you steal to get it or you kill to get it. it. It's the fact that you love something so much, you love something you think will satisfy you and it can't, and so you just strangle it or people who get in your way. Paul Tripp in his excellent book on marriage called What Did You Expect? He, he suggests that when two people get married, they may not actually be in love with the other person. They may actually be in love with themselves. So it kind of goes like, I love me, and I have a wonderful plan for my life. And it looks like you would fit in really well right there to my wonderful plan for my life. And so what feels like attraction and affection for the other person is actually just love for self. And it's this excitement of thinking, I finally found the one who's going to just complete my ideal version of me. And then it turns out you're both black hole of need and sin, and you get in each other's way. Tripp says, the self-orientation of sin can produce a powerful attraction to another person, but that attraction should not be confused with love because, listen, that attraction cannot do, it can't sustain, it can't produce what love will do when all the reasons for the attraction die. What, what do you do then when the feelings fade? Where are you going to find what it takes to lay down your life then. It's all fun when the butterflies are there. Counterfeit love tells you that you are most loved when others make a big deal out of you. And Jesus is showing us, actually, love is always making much of God. That's the most loving thing you can do for anyone. This is clear. This counterfeit love is all over American culture. Right? I mean, through careful branding, through PR, through corporate advertising and virtue signaling, the, the LGBTQ, et cetera, community is probably the group of people most associated with the word love in America today. Right? Think about the slogans, love wins, love is love, love unites. Who wants to be against that? So it all sound like great things. So... They framed a certain lifestyle as being all about love, and anyone who disagrees with that behavior is labeled a hater. 
And what they really mean, you hear these slogans also, be you. Starbucks over June, the month of June, Pride Month, their t-shirts all had a Lady Gaga quote on the back. Don't you ever let anyone tell you you can't be anyone except for who you are. I mean, it, is that the solution? That, that's not love. It, that's actually dangerous and destructive, and he, here's why. You and I have at any given time all kinds of numerous competing thoughts, desires, inclinations, feelings. Just think about it like this. If you see someone in danger, let's say like drowning in a river, you probably have two competing impulses at that moment. Jump in and help them or don't jump in and stay safe. Be you. That doesn't tell you what to do in that moment, does it? That doesn't tell you. Be you can't help you because it doesn't tell you what to do when you have competing impulses. You need something outside of you. Don't go looking down deep and just try to dig out the truest version of yourself. You need to look outside of you to know what it is to love. C.S. Lewis pointed this out when he, he explained that there is no inclination inside of you that is ever safe to fan into flame and follow all the time. Even the most innocent kind of inclination like mother love. C.S. Lewis says, mother, what could be more pure than a mother's love for her child? And yet, it's not safe for a mother to always prioritize that over any other impulse. Because there will be times, as a mom, maybe the kids are out playing in the neighborhood, and the right thing to do is to give another kid a fair hearing because your kid might actually be in the wrong. Favoritism, a parent may be prone to show, might have to be set aside in order to do what's fair. So even a mother's love is not safe. You need something outside of you. Be you is actually some of the worst possible advice you could ever be given because what it means is just follow your feelings, whatever makes you feel good, and that's a guaranteed way to make a mess of your life. Just live a feeling-driven life for a while and see where you get. You don't have to try this in the future. You probably just look back in the past at times when you've been living that way. Maybe you're living that way right now. Jesus rescues you. This is the grace of this text. Jesus rescues you from the misery of needing to be made much of and he shows you that love is objectively defined by the glory of God, not subjectively by the feeling of the one that he's loving. Verse 33, little children, yet a little while, I am with you. You will seek me. And just as I said to the Jews, so now I say also to you, where I'm going, you cannot now come. That idea of where is he going and why is that good for us, that's going to be unpacked in chapters 14, 15, and 16. But, but don't miss this. This was an intellectually confusing and emotionally painful reality for his disciples to hear. They did not want to hear this. And Jesus acknowledges that in chapter 16, verse 6, when he says, Because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your hearts. Jesus loved them, and yet... He says things and he does things that causes sorrow and pain to fill their hearts at times, which tells us love does not mean doing whatever makes the other person feel good on their terms and in the short term. Love means helping others find their fullest satisfaction and security in God, who alone can satisfy even at great cost to yourself. Listen to Paul Tripp again. The problem is not, first, that we don't love one another enough. That's not the problem. No, the problem is that we don't love God 
enough. And because we don't love God enough, we don't love one another as we should. Could it be that we're so busy loving ourselves and making sure that others love us in the way that we want to be loved that we have little time and energy left to love others as we should? I don't know about you, but that strikes home for me. Loving others as Jesus loved you means doing whatever it takes to help them see and enjoy the glory of God. So so just think about the people immediately around you. Husbands, is, is your deepest hope for your wife that she would know God and trust God and delight herself in God and find her peace and contentment in God? And wives, when you think about all the ways your husband could grow and change and do better, do, do you primarily think and pray that he would find his heart satisfaction in God and then speak to him that way, relate to him out of that desire? You go on and on, parents, the way that you relate to and discipline your children. And think about other people in the church, maybe in your huddle, your MC, or other church members. You put people in community and you find it takes something more than just an affinity. The group's full of The world is full of groups of people who get together because they all have something in common. The church is full of people who don't necessarily have anything in common other than that we're sinners saved by grace. And so our love has to come from this desire that others would know the glory of Jesus. And that, that's glorious love. That's glorious love that's new and different than anything the world can ever come up with in any generation. It's glorious love because it is the very glory of God to love that way. Back in Exodus when Moses asked God, will you please show me your glory? You remember the response that he got? I'll cause my goodness to pass before you and I will proclaim my name. So Moses didn't get to see the glory of God, but he did get to hear a description of the character of God, which is a description of the glory of God. Exodus 34, 6. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. How does God choose to describe his own glory? Like that. That's the summary of God's glory. And John told us in John 1 that Moses heard about God's glory. That there was a revelation of glory and grace to Moses. And then the word took on flesh and his glory dwelt among us, and John says, and we saw his glory. In Jesus, the glory of God is not just proclaimed in words for you to hear about, it took on flesh. In action, what Moses heard described, Jesus revealed in the flesh. And in Jesus, the fullness of God's glory dwelt bodily because the only way that God could manifest his glorious character, the character of his mercy and his steadfast love and his grace was for him to take on flesh that could die for you. Because that's the pinnacle display of the glory of God. The glory of God, the sum total of all his excellence, all of his goodness and mercy and grace is not just an idea, it's love in action. Love in costly action. That's how God loves you. His promises are not idle words. He doesn't just stay up there making promises to you. He took on flesh and died for you. That's his love, that he would be willing to suffer humiliation and brutal beatings and 
death for you. Jesus proves to us that God's love is his covenant commitment to do good to you forever, even at great cost to himself. So one author says about this new commandment, it's new because Jesus himself lived it. He didn't just talk about it. John says love love isn't just talk. It's not just words. He lived it. He died it, we might say. He has loved to the utmost. He has incarnated the kind of divine love that the disciples are called to imitate. They not only hear this commandment like they could do on any given Sabbath in the synagogue, Leviticus 19.18. No, they see it on the cross. That's how Jesus reveals the glorious love of God to the world. And it doesn't end there. When you love others in this way, then you're part of showing the world what God is like. Jesus says that our witness to the world hinges on this. Verse 35, by this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So God revealed his character, not just in words, but in flesh, in the person and work of Jesus who died for you. That's the love of God revealed and explained and defined and proven. And you and I weren't there like John was. He was literally an eyewitness of that. He saw it with his eyes. He heard it with his ears. He touched Jesus and walked with him. And yet, that very love of God goes on manifesting in the world in visible, tangible expressions through disciples of Jesus who love one another like that today. He has not left himself without a visible, experiential witness in the world. He built his church marked by that love. And so that's why we talk so much about life on life, life in community, discipleship. We share meals together. We recreate together. We hang drywall and cut down tree limbs and listen attentively to each other's stories so that we can discern evidence of God's grace in one another's lives. And all of those things are just tangible ways that we live out Jesus' command, love one another. As I loved you, love one another. And think about, of all the things Jesus could, said, could have said, the world will know you're my disciples by your sound doctrine, by your really good music, by your popularity, by your political victory, your power, your influence, all the things he could have said, said that they'll know that the defining characteristic will be that you love the way I loved. You ever watch that? One of the first viral videos that Nietzsche Walk, you can tell it's an aspen by the way it is. I mean, you don't have to know much about trees to tell an apple tree just if it's got apples on it. Then you know, okay, that's an apple tree, not an orange tree. That, that's, I mean, it just, you know, hit you right in the face. Defining characteristic. How do you know? Look at the fruit. The fruit that God produces in his people is this kind of lay down your life so that others can see God is most satisfying. That kind of love. That's what he does. That's how Jesus glorified the Father, laying down his life for you to save you, free you from self-absorbed living so you could find your greatest joy in making much of God for the good of those around you. Let's pray. Oh God, thank you. Thank you for your love. We can't fathom the full extent of it. We know we'll go on for all eternity 
plumbing its depth, singing and rejoicing in its glory. But we do give you thanks. The, the little sliver that we perceive now by your grace, we just want to return that to you as thanks and praise. We pray that your love, that we would experience it. As Greg said, that, that we would just know you love us. That, that's the only way we could ever love others. If we just first know, we're, we're first secured in knowing you love us. You gave your son for us. Oh God, may this fruit of love grow more and more. May, may there be an increasing harvest of righteousness, faith expressing itself through love in the people of Emmaus Road Church so that we would be a witness in the city of Sioux Falls, that people would know we're your disciples, we're yours, we're loved by you, we're marked by you, we're changed by you, and that they too would know the glory of a love that, not, not a love that makes much of us, but that brings us into the joy of making much of you forever. May it be so.